0: Welcome to the K2 sales podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point we've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a kind or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business your territory, or with your team. So you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. So when you think about, you know, prospecting and you think about the challenges we face as salespeople, you know, you first maybe want to take a step back and look at lead generation and prospecting as two different entities. And, and Dan, you know, what are your thoughts initially on perhaps who owns these different activities when it comes to maybe sales or marketing?
1: You have to think about it in terms of skill sets. And a lot of the times with sales, it's been sort of people will just say we need to hire for sales or we need more sales help or whatever. And they're sort of combining like five different skill sets into just one hat, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if you think about, the skills that go into getting somebody to agree to talk and de-risking a conversation with a skeptical decision maker, you're looking at, you know, a lot of systems thinking and operations. You're looking at hustle. You're looking at creativity and strategy, um, i.e., figuring out who you're going to contact, how how you're going to contact them in a way that's tasteful, and then getting them to agree to speak to you. So, I think the the short answer is, like in terms of who owns it, it's really. um who has the time and expertise. And if you're in a small team, if it's your, your solopreneur, you have like one salesperson, you're going to have to kind of divide up your day into, into different hats, you know, based on the task.
0: Yeah. And when you when you describe those traits, it almost makes me think uh, maybe we're asking too much of, <laughs> out of salespeople.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, m- most are even, even in really big organizations. I think we see a lot of, uh, you know, companies handling this the wrong way where they'll be like, well, great. I'm going to hire like we've never ha- it'll be a situation you know where somebody has built the business on referrals and they're an owner and they're like I don't want to do this anymore I want to hire for sales and then they'll hire that that really good salesperson who probably interviews incredibly well and they're closing deals all the time uh, and then they send them off out in the cold. And then six months later, we talk to the owner. They're like, "Yeah, that person didn't work out. Um, they just they sucked." And I'm like, "Really? Did they? Or did you? <laughs> did you not support them? You know, did you not give them enough of a foundation? Do you not? did you have training? And all those things don't exist because the company is usually built on on things that the owner can only do."
0: Yeah, I think I think that's important to note that even if you are a solopreneur or a small team. That just that thinking in that way that, you know, that my role as a marketer is this, and this is the, the the stage where I can come in and add value. And then as a salesperson, like we work together, but this is my role. And I think it's just important to minimize any handoffs or any friction that it's seamless. And what I see usually is there's the feedback loop that kind of is missing. So where you have marketing up front, maybe sales in the middle, and then customer experience at the end, like they all need to be talking to each other, um, but they all need to have a consistent message as well. So that they're all, you know, educating the customer under one kind of true north message.
1: Our our whole thinking is okay, like in a perfect world, if you have, you know, a lot of resources and you can be investing in in everything, you know, inbound, outbound, et cetera, great. But the reality is, you know, most of us are have finite resources. And if you're selling something that's not for mass consumption, like you have a quote unquote high ticket offer and it's maybe a B2B service, like agencies, you work a lot with agencies, or you know, a complex piece of software or something like that it stands to reason that your your TAM, your total addressable market is relatively small. Like what you're doing is not for mass consumption. Yeah, what we tend to see is that there's so much encouragement to use marketing tactics that are built for mass consumption, right? As opposed to this idea where it's like, well, the sort of people you need to talk to to grow your business, the, the path to getting to them is probably not as high as you think it is. It doesn't make it easy. And of course, that's, that's a, something we will talk a lot about. Um, but why not build that relationship with them today instead of tomorrow? And I think we see a lot of just, um, you know, like gar like, like uh, cranial garbage, let's say about, what it takes to do that like oh if we do it wrong or are they never going to speak to us again or we burn forever we've got to get all our ducks in a row first we've got to build out the case studies we've got to do this that and the third okay
0: i want to i want to pull some things apart there so de-risk in the conversation is huge but just what you said about you know mass when you think about a niche or a, a product that's not really scalable but they're trying to what what are ways then if you have this niche um, service base where you said you deal with agencies and, and there's not for mass production, but they're trying to get it out there and they're trying to scale it. W- what would you suggest are good ways to do that?
1: We are really into the idea of of doing outreach in order to get appointments with with people in in the companies that you, that our clients have identified. So that that's what we know the most about. I think the inbound side of it is really great too. And I'm not saying that inbound is bad or that there's like one silver bullet for everything. I think though that what's taken for granted is kind of like what's the eighty twenty right? What's that Pareto distribution of the thing that's going to get you. Uh, income and the thing that that's and to get income, you have to get appointments because people aren't just going to buy from clicking. If you sell a complex service, obviously, and to get appointments, what's the quickest way to get appointments? To de-risk a conversation. What's the quickest way to de-risk a conversation? Uh, in our in our experience, it's it's using relationships and the commonalities you already share with the people that you're going after. So so that that's really what what we like and what what we found to work really well is finding a way to systematize outreach as opposed to trying to do um, lots of inbound marketing all over the place that is unlikely to sort of get the, the, the r- rarefied group of people you're going after.
0: Okay. So I love what you said, systematize, because it is a system, right? It's a, it's a network of many, many different parts that that have to work together. Um, so what would you say, Dan, when you talk about outreach, what, what are those who are doing it well? What are, What are they doing?
1: I think the people that are doing it badly and what I think it's easier to identify those things and avoid them um, are, are essentially just going in cold, right? Doing a variation on going in cold. And there's all sorts of ways to go in cold and have it not be a good, the optimal use of your time and energy, right? Which usually looks like. Okay, we're, we're going to build a list, we're going to find the companies, the titles, the, the decision makers, um, and then we're going to send them a lot of materials through a whole bunch of different channels, right? Uh, LinkedIn, email, phone, etc. And then we're just going to keep hammering them until they're ready to talk and buy from us. I'm not saying that never works. I'm not saying there isn't a time or a place for that, but I think that in terms of time and energy now, it's becoming a less of a good deal for sales teams to to do that or salespeople to do that. Um, so to answer your question, you know, w- what are people doing doing well? Uh, I, I think it's it's more about th- front loading the work basically as opposed to backloading it. So it used to be salespeople would spend very little time on prospect identification and personalization and list building. And then a whole lot of time on uh, building a funnel and copy and getting materials, right. And all that sort of thing, all those materials and all that stuff. I'm not saying that's not valuable, but it's valuable once people actually care enough to talk to you and consider what you're doing. Um, And the, the hump the hill you have to get over to get people to actually listen to you is a lot higher than it used to be because of, straight up competition you know in a global economy and technology and so on and also just competition for attention writ large and all the things that are you know pulling at all of us if you just check your inbox you you know what I'm talking about so it, there's there's ways there's different ways to do this like when you hear the word personalization Um, It's one of those buzzwords that can mean absolutely anything. And if I hear 10 people use it, I get 10 different definitions of personalization. The way that we think about it and our proprietary approach is called relationship sales at scale, right? So it's the sort of thing that our hypothesis is it's a little more timeless. It's using the trust that people have through people that they know, or through real commonalities, as opposed to you know, doing something like making a video that's saying, hey, you know, I, I saw you posted this thing on Twitter. Uh, and again, I'm not disparaging anybody. I'm not saying that never works, but it's less compelling than the relationships and the commonalities that are kind of the groundwork for all of us. Um,
0: so is it safe to say it's kind of like a Venn diagram where those three, that sweet spot and, and would that sweet spot be identified by a referral, by, by, by not yourself or by someone else or both?
1: Yeah, good question. So the short answer is that's exactly what it is. It's a Venn diagram overall if you think about the prospects that you want to target, you know that are a good fit for your business, uh and then the people who you know outside of that who share commonalities with you um, that that are, are are innate and then it's the the group in the middle, right? So to answer your question, um now we're getting into the tactics, right? So if you're thinking about relationship sales at scale, what what are those tactics for actually uh, identifying those people and getting in touch with them and everything like that, and then there's there's probably about you know a couple dozen different campaigns that we've run uh, along those lines. So so for example, yes, one of them um, that we use a lot of the time could be referrals, and I think oh, this isn't revolutionary, of course. Like most of our clients, when they've built their businesses, have you know, kind of haphazardly worked the Rolodexes or gotten a referral here or asked for a referral there. The problem is very few of them have done it in a very focused, uh, systematic way. So for example, to get to get really tangible, like one thing we often do is we'll, we'll be like, okay, we're going account-based. We have this list of accounts over here, might be several thousand that we want to do business with. And we say to our client, okay, export a list of your connections. It can be over LinkedIn or email or whatever. Um, and let us know everyone you'd feel comfortable having a conversation with to get referred. Uh, and for some people, it's a dozen, other people, it's a hundred, whatever. And these are all people that are pre-approved. From there, what we do is we then map those people's connections into those accounts and, and into a certain you know, a strata of decision makers within those accounts. And then we do a campaign to those pre-approved contacts and says, hey, can we connect? I'm working on some BD initiatives. Our clients get on the phone with the knowledge of the specific people they're going after, that their friends are connected to. Hey, I saw, you know, Bob, who's the CMO of this giant company. Would you feel comfortable making an intro? And then probably about half of the people will say, yeah, like now that you know, you're specific about it and you're asking for help, you're being honest and upfront. Um, and I know you, I am, I'm willing to help, um, which is great. It does create a little more work than your average, like cold outreach campaign. But it's essentially batching up, you know, years worth of networking and referrals over the, over the course of one campaign that might last a few weeks or a month or whatever. So that's kind of kind of how we like to think about it, and that sort of stuff. And my you know in my experience is timeless.
0: So when you bring them together, is it is it based on their degree of connect, connection?
1: Based on the people that are doing it, based on what the way they feel about that relationship already, right? So it's all it's all based on. That the connection they already have according to the person that's doing the outreach. So this isn't like an algorithm or anything impersonal like that. The hard thing is just being able to keep up with the scale. And that's the thing that that we do differently through blah, 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 secret sauce and all that stuff. But I think that even if, you know, people listening never never hire us, um, philosophically, I think it's a much high, better way to, to do outreach is, is thinking about the sorts of people that are already likely to talk to you. And there's a lot more examples of campaigns I can get into.
0: So for those people, Dan, who are just saying, "Look, I want to start small. I want to get a small list of maybe I don't know twenty people," and I'm looking for commonalities. So, what what kind of commonalities would you suggest they look for?
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. Um, one, let's say you know a lot a lot of uh, people are going to events. Maybe this year has been a little weirder, but maybe you went to an event before everything happened, <laughs> uh, and and there's you know a, a bunch of people that you met there. Um, thinking about Reconnecting with them or or building a list of exhibitors you know that that exhibited at the trade show and referencing that and referencing a specific thing that happened at that event uh, is going to make an email that's very hard for somebody to ignore, even if and granted, you're going for a percentage. let's like let's get back to. You know to to Earth here you're not looking for everybody to agree to talk to you, but a much higher percentage of people will agree to talk to you. you know, if you were for example, to say, "Hey, we attended Acme event last year, I remember you exhibited. I really like this talk about this thing, and now what's happening is yes, you're doing more work at the front end because you're gonna have to go find those companies and those people, but you're you're also getting that scale because maybe you're doing a campaign where you're contacting around a thousand people. Um, and then from there getting, you know, a big handful of meetings out of it. So so that's that's one way to think of it. Another is um, that, that we have done a lot of is finding, uh, you know, examples of, of accounts that people have that you have experience in. So let's say you have a really great experience working with a particular account. Well, there's all sorts of people that might have worked with that account that have now moved on to other companies that you could do business with. Identifying those people and saying, hey, we've done so much business with Acme. You've had such a great experience working with them. It looks like you're in this space now. That's really cool. We've done a lot of work in that space that you know, I think it makes sense for us to, to connect casually. Um, that, again, is creating that effect of, wow, this person's done their research. It's hard for me to ignore this email, regardless of whether I'm ready to talk right now. It's hard for me to ignore. And yes, a much greater percentage of people are going to be willing to speak. So those are just a few examples.
0: So what I'm hearing is you know, you're know, you rewarding those who have actually put in the effort and done some homework and and actually show that in their outreach.
1: Exactly. But at the same time, it's kind of a fine line, right? Because you have to balance that personalization with scale. Because if you are just doing you know, custom love letters or something, and, and you're only going to be able to get out a few in a day, and guess what happens when you get busy? You're not going to get out any. Right, so there there is a numbers game dynamic that's still at play. I just think the numbers have changed, where the cold outreach spaghetti at the wall thing doesn't work anymore, and now the numbers are are getting smaller. For context, depending on the campaign, very t- contextual, blah blah blah. We're probably contacting between about fifty and two hundred people per business day um, on behalf of our clients. And so for some people, that might those might sound like ginormous numbers. For other people, those might sound tiny. It really just it really just depends. Um, but but that's kind of how we're thinking about it.
0: So what would you say to the people, uh, Dan, who say, I don't, I don't believe at personalization at scale because it loses that personalization and that uniqueness. So like that example, the Acme event, if you're sending out a mass email of a thousand people, how do you get that feeling and that connection with somebody, uh, when there's a thousand other people receiving the same message?
1: You have to find scale, and you have to find personalization. Those things are not negotiable. Um, and it's the same thing with marketing. You're not marketing to one person. You're always it's always one to many. Sales is, is is the same the same idea. So it's finding the sorts of things that are at least relatively timeless and hard to ignore. So connections between people. You know, referencing people that you know that they know. I don't mean fake connections. I don't mean the million people on LinkedIn that you're connected to that you don't know. I mean actually referencing people that you know, and have, have an emotional connection to, um, is going to make that, that thing that's hard to ignore and that, you know, I don't think is going to get old tomorrow. So that's, that's kind of how we're thinking about it, but there's not one way. And of course it's something that we're always iterating on and and so on. Yeah. And that's where the creativity comes in and hopefully the fun as well (laughs) with coming up with these things.
0: Think about it. Like, I I guess it's about managing your expectations, knowing that, you know, what what is the response rate I'm looking for? But when you think about any kind of experience, everyone is going to, we're all looking the same thing. We're all going to have a different, it's going to have different meaning. It's going to elicit different motions based on past experience or what we're bringing to the table. So it's almost like, uh, if it resonates with you, then, then I know, like, it's almost a bit of a qualification saying that I know that you are part of my ICP, you know, because of this. And then, and then let me ask you this. Then after that, do you kind of start zooming in and adding more, per- do you group that group kind of the first one that you, that you got a response from and in your cadence, do you adjust your, are they pre built or do you kind of refine your message based on who, who responded to ensure that you're drawing yeah. them in on, you know, that, kind of grouping them on that same emotion or what allowed them to come closer to you or w- w- how, what's your process there?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good, good question. So I, I think that that's, that's where you have to be aware of over automation, right? And, and once somebody responds, um, that's where the, the automation goes off and it truly does become one-to-one because that's where, you know, assuming you've contacted somebody that's generally a fit and they've, sent you response that's at least lukewarm, you know, tell me more, let's talk, contact me in a week, I have a question about this thing, etc. Um, that's where it's really worth your time to go one to one and answer answer that question in person. And that's where I think a lot of companies will go wrong and, um, and, and over automate. And I think sometimes the cost of automation, once you have that relationship, and a relationship it doesn't have to mean that you're married to the person it can mean that they've responded to you and you've had an email exchange um that's that's where you know you you can tank it by over automating so i think sometimes like you know we've all encountered this before where a lot of it's sort of about transparency i think that if you're sending something um you know that's that's one to many after you've already had the particulars of a conversation that's where you're getting diminishing returns basically yeah
0: I would agree with that. I think it's you know you you weed them out, you kind of funnel them down first, and then you got to turn the automation off a little bit because it's done its job. It's filtered those who have uh, responded. It solicited emotion, but then to take it deeper, and I feel that's the beginning of a relationship when you start because you know the the little one one liners and the nuances you're going to have and uncover in the different exchanges are going to be unique to that person. So why do you think, uh, Dan, that people keep that they over automate? Is that a laziness thing is that they don't know, like why do keep people keep the bot kind of mentality going when we now have to transfer, you know, transition to one to one to one.
1: Yeah. And again, like I'm, it's the right amount of automation, but automation is all something that kind of like has to flow from the strategy and, and, uh, what's meaningful and, in those sorts of things. So I think it's a lot of the times the automation just becomes kind of like a deferral and we hear this all the time. You know, we hear like, I can't tell you how many times we hear like, well, well, we invested in this marketing automation platform over the course of a year and uh, we just didn't have the time and energy to manage it and to think about it and that sort of thing. And it's like, it's like if you were, you know, wanted to remodel your house and you just bought all the equipment that a contractor would use, but you didn't have input in, didn't put any time or training or thinking into how to actually rebuild the house, right?
0: So I think it's a missed opportunity because when you look at that, it allows you to really look at the buyer behavior and and start, you know, if you're doing some maybe testing, start looking at in that awareness phase, like what was it that drew them in? What was the piece of content? What was the emotion? What, what was that persona that, that that you know, was there a trend there? And, you know, a lot of finance people responded to that. And was it timing? So I think when you look at, you know, the buyer's journey, it's our role to really understand what are we doing under each phase that's getting adoption, that's getting their buy-in, that's getting their attention so that we can repeat it in, you know, additional future outbounds. And, and, and I think when you over-automate you lose that. And that's, that's the gold nuggets. That's showing you how they're coming to you, why, when, where, everything. And you're just kind of saying, ah, we don't really need that information. And I would say that's why a lot of people, you know, when you say they're either doing really well or, or they're failing and you ask them why they have no idea because they're so far removed from their buyer.
1: That's that's definitely true, and and I also think the thing that makes it harder, like in the B two B space, is the numbers are always going to be smaller, right? I think a lot of the times we have mass marketers telling us how to do things, and they're not always wrong, but we have to just tolerate a higher level of ambiguity, right? Because if you have if your total adjustable market is like whatever ten thousand companies or, or fewer you're never going to have the sort of numbers that tell you definitively whether something worked or it didn't. You have to just kind of like do, do the best you can to identify what worked and keep going with it. You know, sometimes you just have to deal with question marks.
0: Yeah. And what would you say, Dan, that people should be evaluating? Should or measuring? Should they be looking at the meetings booked uh, demos conversions? Like what, what are some of the metrics that people should be looking
1: at? Yeah. Meetings booked is probably the more important thing. Um, there's the whole lead question, right? Like leads. And the problem with the word lead is it can just mean absolutely anything. I think that if you're doing it about marketing and you're paying for Facebook ads or or LinkedIn ads or whatever, then lead matters. And you've got to keep, you know, very close eye on the numbers and that sort of thing. I think in terms of doing outreach, it really, it really is about appointment rate and then the relevance of those appointments. Um, I think where people go wrong is they, they either, they, they make it too vague, right? And they, they make things based on qualitative assessments, right? Well, this this lead was good because they seemed really ready and they were like committed. And this lead was not because they were mean to me <laughs> or, or whatever, as opposed to the things that are falsifiable. Okay, you've made this list of companies great. Um, and you've made, you know, uh, a, a cohort of acceptable titles or, or whoever. From there, like, hold yourself accountable. You got on this many appointments. um, How many of them willing to commit to a proposal call with all their decision makers. Um, that's going to be, you can't let yourself off the hook for that. That's a number that's a yes or a no binary. Then how many of them signed a contract and bought from you? <laughs> so like keeping the numbers very simple like that, uh, I think is is a better way to do it.
0: And how do you, how do you gauge that? Is that, you know, sales leadership that really needs to say, look, this is objective data is it they have lack of pipeline? Is are they using hope as a strategy? Like why why is there so much gray area?
1: You know, in a big organization, it could mean people trying to be less accountable or let themselves off the hook or whatever. But I I think a lot of the times, what happens is there's just not enough um, there's not enough time and in consistency and motivation for people. The, the, the people are focusing on sales. I think it's a mindset issue what we see a lot is they're thinking of like sales as something that happens when they have the time and when it's convenient as opposed to something that has to be going on all the time, you know, like, like for better or worse, there's this kind of embedded growth obligation in, in business. And I think that, uh, cause, cause if you're not growing, then your competition is, and then sooner or later that's going to catch up to you. So that doesn't mean you have to like work, a billion hours a week maybe you're selling the company or hiring people to do things or you have a waiting list for clients or you have other offers or whatever you know there's there's a lot of ways to deal with that but sales isn't something that gets to be turned on or off. So I think to answer your question, when there is that sort of ambiguity, you know, it's because people are trying to be like, well, basically people kind of like letting themselves off the hook, I guess.
0: And, and it sounds like, you know, they're really not willing to play the long game and take that consultative approach. And sometimes what I see is depending, again, this is how they're incented as well as, you know, they have this shiny penny syndrome. And it's like, just hang on a minute here because you can go deep, wide and high in this account. Versus they just want to jump to the new one and it's like finish this one off. Like take it through the journey. Otherwise you're starting stopping so much. And I just think it's, it's, it also shows lack of strategy and lack of process.
1: Yeah. And sort of like lack of thinking about the usefulness or, you know, that, that a value prop provides. I mean, I think what we see a lot of the time, and we, we do, again, we do a lot of work in the, the marketing advertising world is we hear a lot of, well, we don't want to get pigeonholed. We don't want to be stuck in one industry because then, you know, our team won't, won't have fresh enough work. And it, it's sort of, it, it's just a little bit self-centered because it's like, well, you're not thinking about like where you can be useful in a market. And I'm not saying that everyone has to niche or niching is the only way there's other ways to spend Specialize. You know, it could be that you do something that's really different or better and you have a few verticals that are kind of similar to each other that can benefit from that. But I, I think a lot of it's just like not asking the hard questions about like what's, you know, what are you actually doing? Like what's the pain you're relieving and where, where is the usefulness?
0: What are your thoughts on the, those who say the niches are in the riches?
1: It's not always true, but I think it's true more because Because in terms of, like, what you're doing, in terms of, like, a service being provided, even if you're doing something that's, like, really revolutionary and new, and you can hypothetically do that for a lot of different people, um, like, let's think of an example, like an Uber or Lyft. Like, Uber was brand new and could serve everyone, you know, uh, pretty much... Right away, and they just marketed it to everyone, and then Lyft came along, and they, you know, and then they're more focused on being like more casual Uber, where you can tip, and then for basically like the sort of. Business executive that gets an Uber might be a little bit different than the everyday person that gets a Lyft. So like it's sort of even if you have something that's brand new in in our day and age with the spread of information, there's going to be more and more people flocking into that space. To give another example, influencer marketing was huge, right? Somebody could just say we do influencer marketing for anyone and everyone a few years ago. Now every influencer agency we know is is is, is, is niche to some degree and specialized more and more. So I, I think that it's it's not the only way to do things, but I think that that becomes a pretty good model, you know, where if you can find, if you can find a niche um, it's, you're going to have a higher probability of success, but it's not the only way.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So Dan, if people are thinking, well, I really want to up my, my outbound game, uh, I've kind of been um, all over the place. I'm not taking a systematic approach. I'm not seeing the results uh, or the getting the appointments I'm looking for. What would you say the top two to three things that they could start doing immediately to really start getting the results that they're looking for?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, to, to sort of defer the tactical stuff. I think it's more about thinking of who's doing what, uh, of team and roles and that sort of thing. Um, are you in a position where you can hire, where you can get fulfillment and client work off your plate? If, if so, then do that first. Um, you know, if you're in an ownership position, because it's going to be hard to just hire somebody else to do sales for you. Um, so that's kind of the first the first order of business. Um, I think from there it's get, it's somebody to focus on top of funnel. Of course, we do that as a company for for companies that are at a certain point, um, or, or if you're not a company like ours. Then maybe you're you're doing that yourself or hiring somebody to focus on top of funnel and getting appointments, um, and then you're the one that's building out this value prop and taking those appointments and, and fine tuning a sales process and fine tuning a system for getting prospects in and all that sort of thing. Um, from there, once you have that nailed, Then that's when you're thinking about that that full stack closer role. And for people good, I mean, you're you're not going to be able to skimp on that role in my experience. And we've tried it; (laughs) that's probably a a six figure role ish, you know, depending on your situation. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is really like who's doing what, who's investing brain power and time and energy. Um, From there, then we get to the tactics, right? And for for getting those doors open with with skeptical people. And in our experience, and there, there are you know different contexts. I think if you're selling to pizza places and mom and pop restaurants or something it might be a little bit different, but selling into, you know, well-established companies for quote unquote big ticket offers, um, relationships, uh, relationship sales at scale, I think is a really good way to do it and de-risking a conversation based on those like strong commonalities you already have. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks so much. I-, I love the idea of de-risking because I think everyone's back is up. And when you hear sales and salesperson, that in itself needs de-risking these days. Um, so Dan, if people want to learn a little bit more about yourself and sales schema, where, where's the best way that they can find you?
1: Yeah, totally. So we actually have um, a, a non-demand training that I think will be useful. It covers, you know, how you can DIY some of this stuff. Um, and that's just salesschema.com slash relationships, plural. Again, salesschema.com slash relationships. And other than that, I'm always happy to, to nerd out with anybody. My email is uh, just dan at schema.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. And we'll have all that in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for educating us today on um, prospecting best practices, uh, really leveraging the referrals and, you know, not being afraid to to do things at scale. Uh, personalization, I guess, is about managing ex- expectations and knowing you're not going to get everybody. But, you know, where do you turn off that uh, over-automation and start transitioning one-to-many to one-to-one?
1: Yeah, no, really, really great questions, Karen. And I really appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for tuning in to the K2 Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our weekly sales insights are geared towards sales reps, leaders, and small business owners to help navigate the complexity of modern day sales. Our tactical takeaways help you put a plan in place to start creating your own game-changing results. Until next time, happy selling. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.